From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening to a special edition for the 2023 Wilmington City Council election. On this show, an interview with challenger John Lennon, who's running for Wilmington City Council. Lennon recently finished a term on Wilmington's Planning Commission and previously served eight years on the New Hanover County Airport Authority Board. He was also appointed by the governor as an at-large member for Ports and Aviation to the North Carolina Department of Transportation Board. Since 2014, he's been the Director of Operations at River Bluffs, a residential development in northern New Hanover County, and he's also an Eagle Scout. While the Wilmington City Council race is technically nonpartisan, Lennon is running with the support of the New Hanover County Republican Party, and we'll have a link to his campaign site on our show page. We asked Lennon a host of questions, largely drawn from our Community Agenda program, and we'll have info about that as well. All right, John Lennon, candidate for Wilmington City Council. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, I really appreciate it, Ben. Thanks for the opportunity. Okay, so before we get into the questions that we have developed from our conversations in the community, I want to start with what you think are the biggest issues facing Wilmington and how you plan to tackle them if you're elected. Well, thanks. Um, I think there's I, th- I think there's several, but I think if I was um, pulling the, the top three or four, I think affordable housing is definitely at the top of the list because ultimately the housing question – really impacts the other things which are important to me, public safety, uh, economic development, uh, and infrastructure. And, you know, it's funny when you talk about affordable housing, you hear terms like workforce housing or affordable or, and and I'm not talking about subsidized housing. I'm talking about uh, my kids, um, you know, people in my friend group, their children, being able to go away, go to college, come back, and afford a place to live in Wilmington. I'm talking about businesses that want to start here in Wilmington and attract talent from the outside, or outside businesses that want to relocate to Wilmington, um, being able to bring a workforce here that can afford to live here. Um, So I think that's one. I think public safety is another big one. Um, There can be a lot of conversations about crime statistics and is crime up, is crime down. The reality is if there's a perception uh, that people are unsafe, then there's a problem. And so I think um, we need to look at that from a variety of different ways. Handcuffs don't cure everything. Um, But I think we need to make sure that our public safety personnel not only have great support on the front side, meaning they're starting compensation, but also uh, how we retain them uh, in the environment that we create for them to want to stay here in Wilmington. Um, And then the third thing that's really important to me is transparency in government. And we can delve into more of that, but um, the public should not be surprised when big decisions are being made uh, by our city government. And um, I want to I make sure that information is put forth in a timely manner to the taxpayers. Well, we are going to get to all of those things in, in more detail because I have in front of me a list of issues that we hear from the community, and those are all on this list. So Great. let's start with affordable housing because that is it has to be hands down the number one issue we've heard from the community. Rent has gone up somewhere in the 53% range over the last couple of years, two, three years. From your point of view, is the city doing enough? Um, what else could it do? Could it do things differently? Well, I think, you know, first and foremost, kind of as an overarching, so people understand where I'm coming from, 
I think oftentimes, respectfully, it's too easy to say, what is the city going to do to cure this problem? And, and, and you'll probably hear me say that on a couple other issues as we talk during, during this course of this discussion. But I think the best thing that the city can do um, is, in a sense, is to get out of the way um, of the free market. I think that the, one of the expressions people may have heard me say out there uh, campaigning there's two ways to get out of the affordable housing problem. One is to build our way out of it, and the other is to tax our way out of it. Um, and I choose the former. Um, this morning, I, before I came here, I pulled up on our local uh, multiple listing service. Um, there are 503 properties for sale on the mainland portions of New Hanover County today. In a normal, air quotes for the radio listeners, market, that's about 2,500. Um, of those 503, 186 were less than $400,000. So that gives you an idea that there's a huge demand for housing here um, and not a lot of it. So fully acknowledging that the, the city is only one part of this ecosystem, are there things that the city, when you say get out of the way, does that just mean hands off or does it mean make it easier for developers to create housing? All of the above, yes. So I think from the standpoint of getting out of the way, what I mean is to not overburden um, development projects with regulations and restrictions that make them simply – they they're not economically feasible with extensive regulation. That does not mean that it should be a free-for-all, and, and that's the last thing I'm saying. But I, I think the city's recently uh, implemented land development code, the new land development code, took a lot of great steps to help achieve that, um, specifically in the areas of uh, permitting accessory dwelling units, ADUs. You hear that term thrown around everywhere. Um, in terms of density bonuses for the inclusion of workforce housing units within an apartment community, for example. Um, you know, because at the end of the day, Wilmington is, is waterlocked, so to speak. And so <clears throat> we can really only go up um, or achieve density, you know, to uh, in levels greater than suburban neighborhood that people are used to. And so much of Wilmington is suburban, and we have around two to three percent buildable land left. The, the housing experts we talk to say that same thing: is that you have to build denser, and you do have to go vertical at a certain point. It just logistically, you have to. So, a lot of the people we talk to in the community feel okay with that unless it's directly in their backyard. So one question we've had for all the candidates is, yes, density, yes, vertical development, but where? Where should that go? Well, that's a great question. So I've, I've been on the City Planning Commission for the last three years, and um, <clears throat> the, the, the NIMBY concept, not in my backyard, is, is alive and well. And I, I, think, I think it's really hard to answer that, that question in a general sense. I think you have to look at it project by project. Um, but I'll give you some specific examples of that. Um, one was the Carolinian Hotel on Market Street. Um, everybody knows the history there. Everybody knows the history with the city and restraining orders and, and whatever the terminology was, the cease and desist and all the bad things that were happening there. Developer comes in, wants to put, I believe it was 20-some townhomes in the back to back up to uh, in a, a, the portion of Forest Hills. Um, and in the front, put a multi-story apartment building on Market Street. Um, <clears throat> and compared to what's there today, 
I think it was a great project compared to what could be built by right there today in the front part, especially because the front was zoned O and I. So by right, Ben Shockman could go down and pull a permit to build a 96 foot tall office building right there at the front where that is today and really get no permission from anybody other than pulling your building permits. Um, so I think we have a responsibility as a community to look at questions like that. Um, another one that everybody's familiar with um, off of Independence, uh, there was a narrow strip of land that most people never, I used to live in that neighborhood. The first home that my wife and I had here was, was there. Um, you know, the issue there for me was, was traffic flow. And so aesthetics, I understand people's concerns. Traffic, I really understand concerns. And you can't, you can't dump a 200-unit project's traffic into residential, a residential neighborhood and hope that they find their way back to Oleander or Independence, as it might be. So I think you have to look at each project um, to understand the benefits and concerns about it. Yeah, the, um, the Carolinian Inn was one of the motels and hotels on market that was targeted by Ben David's injunction. Yes. That's how bad it got. That, that was the right word I was looking for. He, um, DA David actually took some pretty uh, groundbreaking steps to use the civil courts against those places and, and help pretty much force them to clean up. So that's what was in their backyard. Right. Yeah. Right. So you mentioned traffic. Let's talk about traffic. Um, again, this is definitely one of those things that is – not all in the city's jurisdiction. You've got a lot of state-owned roads, and you've got a lot of just personal decision-making. People can choose to drive. They can choose not to carpool. They can choose not to take public transportation. So with that, with those caveats, what kind of job do you think the city is doing at managing the traffic that seems to get more intense every day? This is one of my favorite topics, um, and this will be wildly unpopular, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sitting through two light cycles is not traffic, in my opinion. Um, especially when it's between the hours of 4 and 7 o'clock in the evenings. Um, that being said, uh, I first started coming to Wilmington in 1984. I moved here in 1998. Yes, do I see more cars than I used to? A whole lot more. Um, one of the biggest issues that, that our region faces is North Carolina, as people probably know, is the second largest owner of roads in the United States. Um, the majority of the roads in Wilmington that people traverse, uh, the arteries, are state-owned. So you take it, for example, Greenville Loop and Oleander. Oleander is owned by the state of North Carolina. Greenville Loop is owned by the city. Um, <clears throat> so it's not just a question of the city addressing a traffic concern. It's a question of collaboration between DOT and, in some cases, a developer and the city um, you know, that the three legs of that stool working together to uh, mitigate the traffic created by a project. Um, but I also think that people need to understand the amount of work that goes into approval of a project in terms of traffic. And one, one thing I'll tell you just as a quick aside, I mentioned accessory dwelling units earlier. What we're seeing a lot of on the Planning Commission that, you know, and we're a recommending body and we recommend approval or denial and counsel as the ultimate decision. But when we look at someone puts together, let's say, three single-family lots and they want to build six homes there or six attached, you know, uh, building, townhomes. Um, we actually take into account, not, not in the townhome situation, but let's say single-family, we actually take into account in the traffic counts that each of those pads is going to build an ADU in the back. So we're really doubling the traffic on that proposed project to look at what the impacts might be. 
The other thing that comes up a lot of times is people's perception of traffic. And the Greenville Loop um, project that, that just uh, – it's going before council, I think, next week. It just went to the Planning Commission last month. It, it, it took a couple months for it to go through because they, they revamped the plan a little bit. But there was an example, much like the Carolinian, where the developer already had a master plan approved, which was going to encompass 60-some thousand square feet of retail and office space. And as an alternative, because the market is dictating it, uh, residential made more sense. Well, the traffic impact from the residential was actually less, not mu- not by much, to be fair, but but it was less than what it would have been had he been able to build what had already been approved. So um, I think that I, I can't talk about traffic without going back, though, to my favorite topic, which is a, of many, the 2014 transportation bond. Um, and, can, and, in, and we'll get to this later, I'm sure, but also the 2016 parks bond. But the 2014 uh, transportation bond, if you look at those projects, it's amazing how many of them would have mitigated so many of the concerns that have been brought up on projects that have been approved over the last nine years. My son's 25 years old. When that project was approved, when those bonds were approved, he was a sophomore in high school, didn't have his driver's license yet. We would drive down Greenville Loop Road, and I would say, son, we're going to have this awesome multi-use path someday. He graduated from Carolina three years ago. So to the fact that it's nine years later is inexcusable to me, um, that all of those projects are not completed and the citizens aren't able to take advantage of them. I want to go back to something you mentioned briefly, and that's the idea of, of townhomes and other kinds of residential development that kind of are the missing middle, as uh, the city's former planner and chief used to refer to it. He, uh, Glenn Harbeck, was a big fan of Brooklyn, right? Big fan of you know townhomes and brownstones with resi- with commercial on, on sort of the corners. It is hard to imagine turning lots of the suburban sprawl of Wilmington into a major urban area. But are there things the city can do to help encourage more of that infill development? I think the um, the passage of the land the new land development code was a huge step in that direction. Um, anecdotally, I can tell you that the the majority of the projects that that I've seen at the, at the planning commission level um, are just that they're infill attached, whether they're two family or three family structures, um, to be able to achieve that density. I, and I have to say this: one of my favorite. One of my favorite comments that I hear are people's concerns about how that may impact their property values. And, you know, respectfully, I would say I could I could throw out a dozen projects off the top of my head where a townhome pricing might have started at, say, I'm making up a number, $300,000. And it's probably $450,000 today. So I, I think, and I don't know of one example of that type of product that's been put in that has had a negative impact on anybody's property value. I, I would love for somebody to prove me wrong, but I'm not aware of any situation like that. So I think I think there has definitely been a mindset, at least in the short three years I've been on the Planning Commission, to I think the development community understands that the city is embracing those type of projects now. Um, I think they're, they're easier to get through planning staff. Um, certainly, at least in my limited experience on the Planning Commission, uh, for the most part, they've been well-received, unless there's an obvious problem with them. So, actually, yeah, a lot of the um, – that leads to our next question, which is concerns about 
those types of developments actually driving up property values. And so this is uh, everyone's favorite boogeyman, uh, gentrification. So we've seen a lot of investment on Castle Street in what they're calling the Soda Pop District, the Cargo District, uh, the North Side. Um, on the one hand, a lot of urban blight that has been replaced with now thriving, functioning businesses. On the other hand, you have people who have lived in those neighborhoods for a long time who are concerned, one, about being priced out, but two, also just about the impact on the culture of their neighborhood. I'll give the same caveat that this is not all the city's doing, and the city cannot control it completely. But we hear from community members a lot, you know, what can the city do to maybe help ameliorate some of the negative impacts of those redevelopments? So, I, I mean, I guess this is a conceptual conversation but in, to a certain extent, because I guess how can gentrification occur unless people sell the properties that they live in? Well, it's a great question. So to your point, we've heard a lot about air properties where you've got, you know, four, eight, 12, 16, you know, grandkids or great grandkids. And it really only takes, if there's not a, a well-documented um, will or deed, right? it only takes one of them to sell to a developer. Uh, so that's one of the concerns. Well, okay. So and I'm sorry to cut, but okay. So on that, on that regard, I can, I can speak firsthand. Um, in the county, not in the city, but my day job, so to speak, um, I've spent the last nine years assembling property, uh, really almost all of which has been air property um, for future redevelopment. One party can choose in, in a situation like that, with, and I'm not a lawyer, but I have been in the real estate world for 30 years. Um, but in a in a air situation like that, um, without specification, an heir may have, I'm making this up, one-third interest or one-sixth interest in, in this particular property. They can sell that one-third or one-sixth interest. Um, but then if someone were to buy it uh, and want to, quote-unquote, force a sale, they would have to go to court to do that. I'm totally against that. I think that's, I think that's not appropriate. It's not respectful. Um, and I think whoever the heirs inherited that property from would be furious if they knew what was happening. And, and understandably so. Um, how the city gets involved in that, I, I don't know, uh, just to be frank. I think that the, you know, there are neighborhoods throughout the city in every part of town that I think have a lot of character and culture. There are also other part, portions of the city that clearly could benefit from redevelopment. So I, I think that it's, um, I feel like I'm going in circles a little bit on, on this, but I think it's it's a I, no one should have their home taken from them, um, and, and I'm, I'm totally against that. I think if you ever heard me speak on the Planning Commission, I'm a huge property rights proponent, um, and that's whether you own one-third of that property or the entire property. So another side effect of development projects that we hear about a lot, maybe disproportionately a lot, is tree cover. Um, and I think there is something about seeing a property clear-cut, like the future home of Centerpoint on Eastwood, that hits people at like a visceral emotional level, especially when you've got live oaks or longleaf pines and you're just taking down multiple acres. That said, the city has done, I th from my perspective, more over the last, say, four or five years to talk about the urban canopy. This is the thing people are concerned about. Where do you think the city is at with this? Are they doing an appropriate job? I think they're doing, um, I think they're doing a much better job. Um, I think that the one of the um, 
<clears throat> I, I keep referring to the new land development code, but I think if, if, if citizens haven't read it, they should. We will have a link on the page. <laughs> yeah, required they, homework. They, they, they really should. But I think um, I was involved. Uh, so I got on the planning commission right as, it, as different sections of the code were being finalized. And so that was one of the most talked about sections. There were a lot of discussions about mirroring what New Hanover County does um, in, in that regard. And I would say that the city's is more restrictive in terms of, of protecting uh, um, tree cover and, in fact, enhancing tree cover through things like parking lot uh, coverage, you know, creating shade in parking lot areas. Which I, But I think the thing that's important to remember when you look at, for example, the parking lot thing, what we found was that the pendulum went so far the other way that you were actually limiting a developer's ability to, to maximize a site. It didn't mean they didn't want trees. It just meant they needed some flexibility as to where those trees could go and how credit for that shade, those shaded areas was applied. To, I think, everybody's credit, you know, stakeholders, members of the Planning Commission and planning staff sat down, worked through it, and we just recently passed an amendment to, you know, the end result is the same. We're just getting there in a better way that doesn't detract a developer from a project. So related topic to both, you know, development, housing, traffic is WAVE, which is not the city's sole responsibility, but it sometimes has financially felt that way. Uh, what are your thoughts on WAVE, where it is now, what you think it could sh or should be doing? Well, first of all, I think um, for any growing MSA um, or, or larger MSA, I think public transportation becomes an integral part of that that city's or region's um, vitality. Um, I don't know that we're there yet, and this is just my, my opinion. Um, just anecdotally, based on what I see and the conversations that I have, um, I think that a sustainable funding method for WAVE is obviously critical, and, and that's not a unique opinion. I'm aware of that. <laughs> but, but, um, but I think that the, uh, you know, when I was on the Board of Transportation for the state, uh, there were a ton of grants that went to public transportation operations throughout the state of North Carolina that the board would have to vote on. And I, I, do, think, I do think there has to be a significant demand shown for a huge investments made. Um, but I, I also think that I don't want to do the same thing that we did with the Memorial Bridge, which is to sit and wait until it becomes a problem to, to have a plan in place to, to accomplish that. Um, so I think now's the time to be talking about how is this public transit system going to, you know, benefit our community? Where do we where will we need service? Little things back to the LDC. You know, there are requirements now in the, in the code for wave stops, transit stops um, for projects of a certain size. That's not necessarily based on current demand, but future demand. So I think those are the kinds of forward looking things that we need to be doing um, for, for public transportation. Unfortunately, WAVE is facing a pretty significant shortfall in the coming years from federal funding. I mean, is that something you're willing to, as a city councilman, step up and, and fill that hole financially? Or are there other ways you think that can be done? If I'm being really honest, um, I, I think there are so many things that we as a city need to address currently for example, the areas that have been annexed that still have tremendous stormwater problems, that still have tremendous road problems in, in terms of the condition of their roadways. Um, 
I think so. So maybe is my answer, <laughs> and I and I'm not. I, I realize that's a cop out to an extent, but I think I think there are a lot of things that we need to focus resources on that have immediate needs, um, that have been in place for for years, um, and so I think. Please don't misunderstand. I think public transit, as I said, is an integral part of, of, of a city's vitality, but um, the city shouldn't be the only one to pay for that. Is there any way we can get Riceville Beach to let us to run a bus to Riceville Beach? So funny story. I was on the airport authority here for eight years, and um, Wave asked if they could put a bus stop at the airport. And you'd have thought the sky was falling. And I don't really know why. Um, but uh, I don't know, because is it better to have, if you if you go there on any given Saturday, count the number of Ubers that go across the bridge. I mean, seriously. So are you better off having a bus go across the bridge or 1,500 Ubers? I don't know. All right. Uh, another topic that you brought up at the top here, and that is public safety. Mm-hmm. So broad strokes. How, what kind of job do you think the Wilmington Police Department is doing? I think the Wilmington Police Department is doing a good job with the resources that they have available to them. I think the fact, and to council's credit, um, the, the starting pay was increased uh, a year and a half, two years ago, I think, um, to $46,000. So I think listeners should think about that for a second. That's the starting pay where you give somebody a gun and a badge, have them ride the streets for 12 hours at a time um, and see things that you and I hope we never have to see. Um, so I think that uh, given the resources that they have, I think they're doing a pretty good job. But I'm never satisfied with a good job. I think we need to, there should not be the perception on the part of any citizen that they don't feel safe, um, regardless of where they live, regardless of who they are. And I think the, the amount of violent crime that we're seeing, um, you know, the, those problems aren't necessarily addressed by additional policing. I mean, they are in the short term, but you're not getting at the root of the problem. So I think that um, that's maybe something else we can talk about as we go forward. But I think that um, I, I majored in criminal, criminal justice in college and, um, you know, to me, having police officers as part of your community was something that was embraced. I grew up in the city of Washington, D.C. Uh, officer friendly was a real thing, right? I mean, officer friendly, that was somebody you respected um, and somebody that you talked to and you had no concerns going up and they'd come out to your kickball game or they'd come out to your baseball game or whatever. And um, I think that that's, I think that would be an ideal scenario for us to try and achieve here. So, there has been a reduction in some kinds of violent crime over the last couple of years. Those things are really difficult to get to the, why the numbers are going up and down, They're kind of overdetermined. To your point, there is still violent crime, right? I don't know any cop who's happy with saying, like, oh, there were only five murders. You know, most people I know in law enforcement with, like, total victory over crime. But you can't get there, right? What do, I mean, what are some of these root causes that you think the police department could get at? Or is, or is that beyond what the police department can accomplish? Well, I think, I, I think the latter. I think it's beyond, I think, you know, at some point you have to realize that uh, police men and women are not trained as social workers. They're not, they should be trained in dispute resolution, you know, all, all the important things, but, but they're not 
meant to address the, a problem at its core. So unfortunately, there's a, you know, I'll give you a real world example that happened. So my daughter graduated from uh, New Hanover and she was around the corner from the catwalk the day of the shooting. Um, and I did what every dad's not supposed to do. I jumped in the car, drove down there. And I'll never forget looking out on Market Street and just seeing the sea of law enforcement out there. It, was, it looked like an occupied country. Okay, so you look back at sort of how that all started, and it was dispute resolution with a gun. And, um, and I, I think that's – you can't expect the police department to address the, the, the core route there where, you know, two individuals have a disagreement. One says, I'll show you, pulls out a gun. Um, you know, police are trained to deal with the, the incident and the aftermath, not the root cause. So I think that's, a, that's an area that a lot of people look to the city of why is this happening? Well, that's a, that's a much larger social question than the city government can tackle. All right. This is the last of our questions from our sort of polling of the community, and that is about economic development. So narrowly constra- construed, that's sort of the city's you know incentive programs, but it could be more generally just the city's conversation with public-private partners, or you know behind the scenes lobbying to to bring businesses here. What kind of job do you think the city is doing at economic development? A better one than they used to. Um, I think that there is is more focus on it now. Um, I think that the I'm not a fan of huge giveaways to to draw businesses in. Um, what I'm what I'm more excited about are public-private partnerships or um, incentives in the form of benefits to a company that that keep them here um, and that keep the jobs that they have, the employees that they have living here and and, and working here. So I think um, I, I said this at one of my forums. I'm, I'm not. Big picture, I'm not a huge fan of attracting another large, I call it slaying the elephant. Um, I'd much rather have 10 medium to small businesses, medium sized to small businesses, uh, than one large behemoth. Because at some point that behemoth is going to make a decision to either leave the market or get purchased by somebody else and leave. And so, unfortunately, this city has a history of that happening. Um, And I think the impacts of it um, are far greater than, you know, it's less risky to have more small and medium-sized businesses. I guess you sort of diversify your risk that way. Absolutely. I think you diversify your risk. I think you uh, you also diversify your job opportunities completely. Um, and I, I'm not going to pick on any one employer, but if, if all you do is make widgets, then all you're going to hire are widget makers. So I think you have to, if you if you have a widget-making company and a – a square making company and a circle making company, then you have more employment opportunities. The lack of diversity has been another concern that I've heard from some folks is that for two reasons. One, if you have sort of a higher level white collar fintech company, for example, the odds that you are employing people from the greater Wilmington area versus that you are pulling people from RDU, Boston, Silicon Valley, um, the question is who are those jobs going to? And the other half of that is if you are creating great jobs, I mean, six-figure jobs, there are certainly a lot of people in the Wilmington area, in the service industry, in the workforce industry, who that's not going to help them. That's sort of inaccessible to them. 
would I mean, are you happy with the range of jobs that are being developed right now? I'll revert to the answer to my to the previous question. <laughs> no, I think I think again, I think that the the diversity of employment is critical to our future, and I think it's critical to um, the future of our our city's economy for the, all the reasons that you just stated. So the reality is, you need a balance. You need um, you need employment opportunities at the white collar level um, and, and above and below to to achieve that balance. So this is something you brought up as you were giving your sort of opening thoughts. And I haven't asked all the candidates this because as a journalist, transparency is like a, I'm a dog with a bone about it. But many people in the community are not super concerned about transparency. But you brought it up. I care about it. So let's talk about it. What are your concerns about transparency with the city? So um, my concerns about transparency of the city, and I'll, I'll, I'll abbreviate the story um, a big, but I'll start with a bigger issue, which is the PPD building, um, Thermo Fisher, whatever we want to call it. Um, I was not in favor of purchasing the building, um, and I'm definitely not in favor of city government occupying the top levels of the, of the building. When I went back and started really kind of looking at it and for obvious reasons uh, as part of the campaign, paid more, you know, watch all the meetings. And, and I may be I may be slightly incorrect, but there were essentially two agenda reviews where presentations were given about the acquisition of, of the building. Um, and there were a lot of numbers thrown around in there. And the one that comes to mind, and I may be off by one or two million, but uh, was the Chestnut Street. Uh, redoing that building was going to cost $94 million. And I remember looking at the person I was with at the time and saying, have you ever heard that number before? I'd never heard that number before. I'm not, not that I'm anybody, but I have been kind of involved in city government for the last three years. And, and um, that was a surprise to me. Um, And it shouldn't have been at all. The other thing that's a mystery to me is, so it started out as a three cent increase, then it was a one cent increase. And then suddenly there's no increase in the property tax rate to acquire the building. Yet no one's told us how that's going to happen. And, and I know the way it's going to happen because I've, I've had multiple conversations with different department directors across the city, and there are services that we're not going to receive. Um, so I, I just filled out a questionnaire for another outlet. Uh, I'm not going to vote for any budget that has a tax increase that's tied to that building. Um, that building was dropped on the community as a surprise, and there should have been a lot more transparency around the whole thing. I'll balance that by saying it's a real estate transaction, and I do think those need to be protected to an extent just to make sure that you know the city's getting the best deal they can get. Um, the other story I'll tell you was um, just had to do in my neighborhood with a silly little thing of replacing a tree, and I did something I'd never done in my life and filed a public records request with the city. And I had to go back either three or four times uh, because what I got in, in, uh, from my request was, was embarrassing, honestly. Um, and then suddenly uh, all the emails about the topic became protected. And as a journalist, you'll appreciate what that means. And for your listening audience, protected in, in those situations means that um, it's not subject to the open – you can probably explain it better than I can – but. But the, basically, personnel issues, active business transactions, that sort of thing. So somehow the removal and replacement of a tree in a cul-de-sac 
um, it, on my street became a protected matter. Yeah. Um, just for context, the, yeah, the public records law um, does allow government bodies to withhold certain kinds of information, personnel information about employees. If a correspondence involved someone's social security number or HIPAA information for whatever reason, that could be redacted. Um, many governments fail to acknowledge that you can actually request a line-by-line redaction. So if an email had all the information you wanted, but they accidentally mentioned a, a child's medical edition for whatever reason, um, an attorney at no cost to you, uh, John Q. Public, should go through and black out that one line, and then you should still get that email. It's an issue we've had not just with the city of Wilmington, but with almost every government agency within 90 miles. The other thing I want to add real quick is the cost of the Chestnut Street building was also a surprise to myself and my colleagues in the journalism world. This was apparently a needs study that the city had done internally. It wasn't a secret, but it wasn't well publicized. And they gave us this information by saying, well, we're going to spend less than $70 million on the PPD slash Thermo Fisher building. But the alternative was this almost $100 million redevelopment of the Chestnut Street building, which for people who don't know is the corner that isn't the library, uh, City Hall, or the United Bank building. Very sort of old, brutalist-looking concrete building. Um, and, and I hadn't spoken to anyone who had heard about that before. It doesn't mean they made it up, but it means they didn't – no one had heard about this before. Well, and, and I, I want to be real clear on this because when I talk about the transparency issue, I'm, I'm not implying I, – I'm not implying that there are evildoers or that there's an intention – uh, an intentional effort to hide things from the public. What I do think is happening is that there is a failure to realize the importance of educating the public on how their tax dollars are going to be spent. And uh, I think that's government's responsibility. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of believing that government should be in the customer service business. And you should not have to do a public records request to understand why something's happening the way it is in your city government. Last question for you, because I skipped over this, um, and you mentioned this at the top, was uh, homelessness. I think we've spoken more about homelessness at this news outlet, probably almost every other news outlet in the region, more over the last two years than we have in the past 10 combined. Not the city's sole responsibility, but the city has had some role in it. How do you see that issue? This is, this is, um, this is a a sensitive issue for obvious reasons because it involves human beings. And and so, but I have to start this by saying that when I grew up, and I grew up in a city where the homelessness problem was exponentially greater than any city in North Carolina that I'm aware of today, um, it wasn't city government's role to quote unquote cure that problem. Um, faith-based organizations, charities, um, really stepped in to provide resources to individuals to improve their, their current situation. So I think when we look at the homelessness situation here, first and foremost, I think every resident has the right to feel safe wherever they are. I also think that the, um, I think you can't, the, the a lot of people say, well, what's your opinion on housing first, you know, versus some other alternative solution? The reality, at least in my limited experience, is that it's different for every individual. So you can't apply a broad cure across a problem 
it's really an individual problem that somebody needs to spend time with each individual that's suffering from the homelessness situation because is it a financial issue? Is it a mental health issue? Is it a drug issue? One answer doesn't solve all three of those problems. And so I think relying on um, a collaboration of government to make sure resources are available. Um, I think that the endowment, which is a, a blessing for New Hanover County, um, you know, could provide uh, opportunities in each of the three areas that I talked about to address what I, what I think are the root causes of, uh, of the homelessness issue that we're going through. You certainly would not be the only person looking to the endowment for help on a wide swath of things. Well, I, I think, you know, all of the communication I hear is that it, it's, uh, it's intended to bring about transformative change. And so um, I think, you know, you think about someone who's in a situation where they are homeless. And granted, as I said before, I, I'm, I'm, I apologize if I'm generalizing, but those, those three areas are typically where um, the, the cause, whether it's financial, mental health, or, or, or drugs, um, I think this is an opportunity to create uh, programs and opportunities for individuals to, to fix the situation. All right. Well, you've been very generous with your time, but I want to give you a chance for any closing thoughts here. I just um, first, I, I really appreciate the opportunity. Um, I've never run for public office before. Um, I, I've mentioned over the course of this interview some of the public service things that I've done. Um, I, you know, I, as I mentioned, I've been coming here since 1984. We moved here for good and at the end of 98, uh, raised three kids here. Um, this is where I'm going to be. And uh, I believe that I have a responsibility to give back and to engage in the community. And so um, I, I'm not always going to agree with every question or opinion that comes my way. But the one thing I will commit is an opportunity to talk through an issue. Um, and I had an opportunity to do that uh, this past weekend with somebody that took exception to uh, my chosen profession, which is in the real estate world, and thought that because of that I, I had all these predisposed thoughts and, and concepts about policies, actually reached out. We met, um, talked for a little over an hour, and I think I might have a supporter out of it. So um, I'm happy to talk to anybody and everybody and look forward to a great campaign. All right. John Lennon, candidate for Wilmington City Council. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Ben. That was our interview with challenger John Lennon, who is running for Wilmington City Council. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening to this special edition of the Newsroom. And check out our other candidate interviews at whqr.org or wherever you get the Newsroom as a podcast. <laughs>